Hello there, welcome to the fourth episode of the HSK Student Pod. This is Richard, your host from the HSK ETEC team. Thank you for joining us on the fourth episode of the HSK Student Pod. It's a pleasure to have you as one of our listeners. I wish to start off by thanking all our listeners for the continuous and positive feedback you have been giving us regarding the HSK Student Pod. We encourage you to keep sending in any ideas you have got and to share the podcast with your friends to help build the HSK staff student community. As usual, I have special guests for you who are going to share wonderful and inspiring messages with us, and I hope you enjoy this episode. First, we have a message from uh, Julie Volo, our Associate Dean for Learning and Teaching and Student Experience. Julie is uh, going to give us some general news and updates on what's going on in the school. I now hand over to Julie. This month, I just want to say a few words about Joy Morgan. Joy is one of our second-year midwifery students, and sadly she's been missing since December the 26th last year. You may well have seen the notices, both on StudyNet and around the local media. We know that Joy's disappearance has affected all those, of course, that know her through her family and friends, but also the staff here, and of course, those students in her own cohort. People are still desperately worried and still have had no real news about Joy's whereabouts. There is, though, a service for Joy that's going to be held in the university this Wednesday, so Wednesday the 13th of March, and all are welcome to come. It's going to be held at half past five in the Oval on College Lane, and the dress code is purple and white. It's called a service for Joy, and I hope to see many of you there. If you have any information that you feel could assist in the investigation, um, there is a non-emergency number that you can call, which is 101, which would take you through to Hertfordshire Constabulary. Um, alternatively, if you want to be anonymous, you can also call the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. And if you have anything at all that you think might help the police in their investigation, then please do pass that information on. In the meantime, we're a close community here in the university and here in this school, and we understand this is a difficult time for all of those concerned. So we just want to send a message, really, support to everybody, friends, family, fellow students and members of staff, um, and we hope to see you at the Service for Joy on Wednesday. Thank you, Julie, for sharing with us the important news and keeping us up to date on what's going on in the school. Our thoughts are with Joy's friends and family at this difficult time. For this month's student success stories, we have our guest Ellen Ryan Gill, a third year adult nursing student. Ellen is going to share with us her empowering experience of accessing student support during her second year. I now hand you over to Julie who had the opportunity of meeting and interviewing Ellen. Okay, thank you, Richard, for that. And um, now we're going to introduce Ellen Ryan-Gill. Ellen is a third-year student on the BSc Adult Nursing Programme. And Ellen's here today to uh, talk to us a little bit about her own experience of um, getting support as a student. And she's in her third year now, but in her second year, I think, Ellen, uh, what you said to me more or less is you hit a bit of a wall at one point. And I wonder if Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what happened and then, you know, what kind of support you you got afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was very much, it was during my 10-week placement. Um, 
emotions running high. I was in a place where I hit quite close to home. Uh, it was a renal dialysis unit and um, I've had a lot of kidney trouble myself. Um, but about a couple of weeks in, my brother got very sick, really sick, um, to the point we weren't sure if he was going to make it or not. But he did, thankfully. You know, he's alive and well, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But at that point, it was really, really hard. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll get on with it. Like, this is just what I need to do. I can crack on. And it got to a point where it's like, no, I can't do this anymore. I just couldn't get myself out of bed. It was horrible. Um, and that's not me at all. I wasn't myself whatsoever. Um, so I decided when I was going to a um, tutorial about one of my essays, my uh, tutorial kind of leader said, how are you today? And I just burst into tears and it kind of, you know, it was, it was horrible, but it needed to happen. Um, but the response I got from that was just, I couldn't have asked for anything better. It was fantastic. You know, um, the seminar, uh, well, the tutorial leader was so supportive, just very, you know, you need help. This is okay. Thank you for telling me, you know, this is, this isn't a weakness. This is a strength of yours that you've identified this. Um, and she was saying, you know, go to your GP, get signed off for two weeks, take the time you need to heal because it, it's it's hard. It's not easy being a student at all. And I think that really hit home for me. I think mm-hmm. that I thought that this was normal, but it, it wasn't. And it, being a student isn't easy. <laughs> it's very hard, but it's everything you get afterwards is definitely worth it. And um, so from there, I had support from my seminar leader, my personal tutor, uh, my head of year at the time in second year. Um, and it wasn't just even, you know, them signposting me to places. It was the empathy they had for me. Yeah. It was the understanding of this is this is a horrible situation, but we're here for you. And this is perfectly OK to feel the way you feel. And I don't think I would have found that in anyone else. It was honestly a one of a kind experience. It was really, really lovely. And when you had, you said you were in a tutorial, was that a one-to-one or were you with a group of people? So at the time, while I was waiting to go and see her, there was a other group of people around us and it wasn't actually in a room. It was kind of in a bit of a, in the right building where the uh, chairs are outside the classrooms. Mm. And um, when I started to speak to my sorority, it was actually in, it was one-to-one then, yeah. which was lovely. Um and when I did kind of burst into tears, my seminar leader goes, do you want to go into the other room? I said, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm, I'm happy where I am. But even that consideration of, do you want to go to the side? Do you want to, you know, go somewhere where yes. people might not walk in and see you? So there was that consideration there, but I was quite happy yeah. to just do it then. <laughs> I think it was yeah. such a wreck. It was okay yeah. for me to be there. So. But, and that's that's such a typical response, I think, from a, a either a health or a social work student. You know, anybody in the kind of caring or support professions, and people say, "Are you okay?" You go, "No, no, I'm fine." And you said you're crying, yeah, <laughs> lots yeah. of tears, but no, I'm fine. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I think that's uh, that's typical, and it's it's uh, it's great to hear that not only you felt able to say, "Actually, no, I'm I'm not okay mm. um, with this," but also that your tutor sort of understood that and was able to respond to it and the response you got was obviously something you felt that um you know you felt uh, that that met your need at the time definitely and yeah. i think that's a huge thing i'd like to get to across to any other student nurses or you know any other student in this university whatever school you're in that it's okay like to not be okay yeah it's it's not an easy thing to be a student you know nursing in particular it's it's hard you have placements to do some of us some of my friends have got kids some of my friends have to have full-time jobs on the side some of my friends have to you know not put a lot of money into what they're going to put into their stomach but we crack on and get on with it because we love our jobs and this is what we want to do so it's not easy 
but if you talk to someone it is so much better it it makes it so much better you know I really kind of thought that not that I couldn't talk to anyone but I didn't I thought this was normal and actually when I sat down and someone said am I okay I very quickly realized I wasn't um so I think that's my big message is if, if you're not in a good place, tell someone because it made a world of difference for me and let people that. Do you, do you think that sometimes people don't say because they think there's nothing can be done? I think sometimes there is a fear that saying it might bring it all up again and all of a sudden there's nothing there. Almost, like As in people will start talking about it and think oh my god it's just come out all my system and now what do I do with this information mm. that I've given them what are they going to think of me or what yeah. are the perceptions going to be with yes. me as a student um, but that's that's something I would also say that's really not the case um, and I think sometimes I think it's a I think it is definitely a student nurse thing we try to put on our brave faces and try and be as strong as we can and get well with it but it's but equally it's not it's something that shouldn't be seen as a weakness it's not a weakness if anything it's a major strength it shows your ability and that you know we talk about it all the time in nursing and having emotional intelligence and realizing what our not necessarily limitations are but what our uh, limits are like our competencies and what what we can cope with and what we can do and sometimes what we can't do um and that's as important isn't it you know it is about your your fitness your health your well-being to practice to mm. be out there how can you support other people if you yourself need support exactly Uh, exactly. and I think that message comes through very strongly from what you said in the strength is in recognizing when you do need help because these jobs nursing midwifery paramedics radio all all of these professions social work all are massively demanding not just physically but mentally as well and actually have to be in kind of tip-top condition don't you to be able to give that to other people and that does mean that you have to recognize yourself when you need a little bit of helping hand to get through hearing the way you describe it and and you know you said how important it was I think you said to me earlier you wouldn't be here now in your third year if you hadn't had that help in your second year oh definitely not um you know I just feel like I would have ended up crumbling and just dropping out and I needed that break (laughs) I needed that time to not just reflect but also just heal and just you know, not have yeah. to worry about getting up at silly o'clock in the morning and making my hours up, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if it wasn't for any of their support, no, I wouldn't be here. I really don't think I would. And it's not even just been, they gave me the support and then that was it. Mm. I finished my 10-week placement and I had emails from all my all of these people that were involved with me making sure that I was okay and making sure that I was still, you know, even now one of my one of my you know personal tutors emails me going, "How's your brother?" because they remember and it's yeah. that for me is what makes them one of a kind because they remember the individuals. We are a huge school, you know, nursing in particular yes. is a huge cohort, but they don't forget anyone. They don't forget your stories. They don't forget where you've come from, what you've been through. They all seem to remember the little bits about you. And that, for me, is just so unique about them. Um, and even now, further on down the line, as a third year, where I am emotionally a lot better and psychologically very well supported, I've been supported in other ways, not just psychologically, emotionally. You know, I recently got my first ever community nursing job. And Exciting. Yeah. Yes. And this is, this is the job, this is where you want to work. Yes. yes. And it was something that I wouldn't have been able to do with them either because they helped me with writing my personal statement. They helped me with interview techniques, something that I'd not really thought about. But actually, when I started getting interviews coming yeah. in, I thought, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Because, yes. <laughs> you know, an interview for when I was, you know, working part-time as a waitress is different to an interview as being a full-time registered nurse. Um, 
So their advice also helped me in that step. You know, it's one of those things of they don't just help you with one bit. They help you with everything. They help you with the psychological, the emotional, the academic side, and also the future. You know, they don't just kind of send you off after three years and that's it. They want to know every little part of you. And that to me is, is, is just been amazing. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And it just, it, it, when when you're talking, I'm thinking about how in so many respects, what you're talking about is the role modelling of our professional values, you know, and again, whether it's nursing or any of the other professions, you are talking about that, you know, holistic approach, that individuality, that caring for people, the compassion, the empathy. Um, and you, you said about kind of the details, you know, recognising people for who they are and what's important in their lives, which mm. is huge important to do and very difficult in certainly in the larger cohorts where it's, it's quite easy to become invisible isn't it and to yeah. feel invisible and you in stepping out and saying actually I think I do need a bit of help you know did something very courageous too uh, and I hope that you know I hope other students listen to this would would see the importance of that themselves um, not just for themselves but also for their peers because sometimes you look around you and you perhaps see someone else that you feel maybe maybe they also need a little bit of help, a little bit of encouragement just to step forward and get the support that's there. Mm. So I think that's kind of a message too, isn't it? You yeah. Know, for, for, you know, look out for the people around you as well. Exactly. It will be at one point that these people might be your future colleagues on a ward and we have yeah, to look point. after each other. You know, if, if it gets to a point that, you know, all of a sudden something really traumatic has happened on a ward or even out in the community or even if you're working in the acute departments of A&E or, you know, yes. acute medical assessment units, we have things called debriefs, uh, you know, to make sure that we reflect on what's happened, mm. but also recognise the emotions of our peers. And yet, although that's something that's seen out in the bigger picture, sometimes it's maybe not always done as a student. Um, but I think it's a really huge step in the right direction. You know, it's not just about, not to say that we shouldn't forget our own needs, but, you know, our colleagues aren't people who are below us or above us. They're on the same level of us. And it's important that we look after each other because if we don't look after our staff just as well as ourselves how we meant to look after other people and I think the other thing is as well about having knowing you know the little details they knew about me that's something I do as a in practice you know that mm. my patients don't go to me in my feedback form oh she did the drug round really well she they go in the feedback form she remembered my dad's name she remembered yes you know that that's how I liked my cup of tea made you know and that's the little things and I think that what they've shown me in their support will reflect what I do in practice now. And that to me is just something why I love my job and why I love this career. So wonderful. Well, if you could see her and not just hear her, you see Ellen's got a big smile on her face. (laughs) 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 And that's thank you so much so many important messages in there Ellen for all our students absolutely and I'm I'm so pleased to hear that you know as you say we started by saying you hit a bit of a wall in your second year and you recognize that um you've got it all back together clearly now which is brilliant um and lovely to hear that you've got your first job to look forward to as well <laughs> so I'm gonna thank you for joining us today and thank you for for sharing that very personal experience with us thank you very uh, much Ellen and best of luck in your career thank you so much <laughs> that's a fantastic message from Ellen and Julie Ellen Thank you very much for coming to share with our listeners your personal experience in accessing student support and how you got through that tough time during your course. Your message is empowering to all our listeners, especially those who may be going through what you went through. Ellen, thank you very much for opening up to our listeners. We wish you good luck in your remaining few months of the course. This is to all our HSK student listeners. We are always keen to hear first-hand accounts from HSK students about your work, your experiences, your challenges, and your successes. Please, do get in touch if you have got a message 
you'd want to share with our listeners? For this month's professional spotlight, we have Dr. Laura Abbott from the Midwifery team. I don't know if you've been in that situation, watching TV or reading a magazine and see someone that inspires you. You wonder how they did it. You also think they were born with special powers, but we tend to tell ourselves we could never achieve the same impact. Now, we are so lucky to have our special guest today who will be able to share with us how she has moved from an academic idea to making an impact in policy and in a wider world. Laura is going to talk to us about her research looking at the issues facing pregnant women in English prisons. Thank you very much, Richard, and it's a real pleasure to be here today on the HSK Student Pod, and I can reassure you that there are no special powers involved. Wow. I now hand you over to Laura. What we know about women in prison is that they make up around 5% of the prison population in this country, and many of the women that are in our prisons are um, from difficult, disadvantaged backgrounds. For example, we understand that 80% of women are suffering from some form of mental ill health, Um, around 70% are um, substance abusers and addicted to alcohol or drugs. We understand that approximately half of the women in our prisons are also victims of domestic violence and many have suffered um, complex and difficult childhoods, including being looked after children or maybe victims of childhood um, sexual abuse as well. We understand that there is approximately 600 pregnant women in in our prisons each year, but we don't currently keep the numbers. We don't know very much about pregnant women in prison, and that's what um, drove me to try and find out about their experiences. What research has been done is usually through eyes of the staff or um, has been more of scoping exercises rather than a qualitative piece of research. And I really wanted to uncover what women's experiences were of being pregnant in prison. So what I did um, was a qualitative ethnographic piece of research, which is a naturalistic inquiry. And that involved approximately 260 hours of field work in three prisons. And that took over about, that was taken over about 10 months. And I also um, was able to audio record interviews in depth with 28 women and 10 members of staff. 22 of those women were in prison when I interviewed them and six women were post-release. And in total, I had 58 interviews to analyse. And throughout my study, women described their struggles as they try to balance managing their pregnancy symptoms with maintaining a kind of sense of bravado, so trying to meet their physical needs whilst trying to blend in. And these tensions created an overriding sense of strain, which is carried through the pregnancy, and it potentially can impact upon a woman's physical health and that of her unborn baby. We understand that stress can be um, passed across the placenta, especially in the third trimester of pregnancy. 
Um, there's conclusive evidence that suggests that toxic stress can really impact upon an unborn baby, in, including future behaviour of that child. Um, and women also described to me how their nutritional needs were not met. Um, they were often hungry and they um, found that they couldn't drink the water in the prison and it was very difficult for them to meet their nutritional needs. And another thing that women would talk about was the shame of being handcuffed to and from antenatal appointments. Um, and that was common with all the women that I spoke to and they described their humiliation and embarrassment. Um, and the majority of the women, I, I, 76% of the women that I interviewed were in prison for non-violent crimes. And they described how they felt that the public was staring at them and the perception of the woman being a bad mother was really strong and they were very upset and distressed by that experience. I also found that there was a lack of necessities available. For example, women would tell me that they couldn't get hold of things like breast pads um, and that was very difficult and, and also caused a lot of shame. Some women had their medication delayed on reception to prison, including for mental health and blood pressure conditions. And one woman lost her privileges because she felt too nauseous to work. She had a condition called hyperemesis gravidarum, which is where um, you feel constant sickness and nausea. Several women I spoke to were working up to their due date and going back to work soon after giving birth. And I found that there were significant threats to the safety and well-being of pregnant women and their unborn babies. And this included one woman who gave birth in her cell. Staff also told me about their experiences of cell births. One said, you're delivering a baby and you don't know whether that baby is going to be breathing. Another said, we all panic and hope it's a good nurse that's on. Another said, we were like, we've got a baby in prison and we didn't know what to do. And another said, we don't have mobile phones in prison. So a mobile phone was brought down for the nurse to ring to be talked through delivering a baby. Commonly, women were unaware of their rights and entitlements and this led to expressions of frustration and disempowerment. And the lack of clear guidance for the treatment of pregnant women led to staff uncertainty and feelings of insecurity in the women. My research really offers explanations of how the prison system falls short in taking pregnancy into account, which subsequently impacts upon the pregnant woman's normal bodily physiology, exacerbating her suffering. The gap created without a dedicated, mandated perinatal women's policy leaves women and babies at risk. The prison environment means that women strive to manage the physical symptoms of pregnancy, such as hunger, nausea and discomfort. And stress levels are heightened. And women told me that they were especially frightened at night time when they're locked in. And we know that high levels of stress can adversely affect the unborn baby. One woman told me, if I wasn't pregnant, I wouldn't be so scared. I can't defend myself being pregnant. I just feel vulnerable. I interviewed some women who were going to be separated from their babies soon after birth and their experiences were complex and difficult and anticipating separation was especially distressing for women. <laughs> it's funny because I put 
sweets on my belly and we play games and I like move her. And like her back's round here the minute like that. We play games. I do tell her I love her and that her dad loves her and that I'm sorry. I wrote two pages of her saying how sorry I am and everything like that. But social services have probably put that in the bin. I really hope that I'll get a place in the mother and baby unit, but they said no. I've appealed, but haven't heard anything. They said, oh, social services said we shouldn't give you another chance. I was hoping to breastfeed her to get that bond with her while we're in it, but obviously she's getting taken away, so there's not much point. I would like to meet the people looking after my child, just say thank you. I'm kind of hoping they don't get too attached because people like to snatch up newborn babies, don't they? So the anguish of separation soon after birth would often mean that women really wish to disappear and blend back into the prison populations and numb their feelings and become what they said to me was a normal prisoner again. However, for women who were leaking milk, not being able to have access to breast pads was a particular concern to them. Some women told me how they had to improvise with tissues, gauze and by tearing sanitary towels in half to soak up their milk. My baby was three weeks old when I was sent to prison. I was breastfeeding but combining it because if I was going to prison I didn't want it to be a shock to his system. So when I was sent away he went on formula. I was leaking for a while but after that it just kind of dried up. I wasn't in pain or nothing and I had to put tissue in my bra because I didn't have any breast pads. I've never hurt anyone. I've never been violent. I obviously did something wrong. For some women, prison was actually seen as a bit of a sanctuary, especially those who may have had very difficult lives on the outside. And seven women in my research talked about um, prison being a bit of a safe haven, somewhere where they felt safe from the difficulties that they may have been experiencing on the street or as um, substance abusers. And what they told me was that pregnancy could be the turning point for them if they're given a chance to keep their baby with them. It took three tests for me to believe it. Obviously, while I'm in here, it's got the best chance of getting better. So yeah, I am lucky in a way that I did come in and I did need it. So I've got that. Um, Like I say, I believe everything happens for a reason and I got picked up when I did at the right time. But yeah, it does feel different. And I mean, they don't treat you much different in here, but they, they, they do in a way. Do you know what I mean? They support a lot more in here. They're quite supportive anyway, but I must say when you're pregnant, they're, they're very good with you. But yeah, it is worrying what I've done to the baby. I know it's not going to be easy. And I know some babies can have problems with, well, because obviously it's going to have to be weaned off because I'm on methadone. So now I know I've got all that to come. It is scary, really. But I think sometimes you're better off in here than you are out there. Sometimes I really do. Yeah, and I know that's a sad thing to sit here and say. But I just don't know which way to turn sometimes. And... I just keep going back and back because no matter which way you turn, it's not either one way or the other. So you just take, I think, the easiest road. I reckon this time I might change. I never know. 
To sum up, my research looked at the experiences of pregnant women in English prisons and my findings demonstrate how complex it is to navigate the prison system, especially when a pregnant woman's rights and entitlements are complicated to access. And also for staff, the complications are difficult for them to manage in view of the rights and entitlements and them knowing exactly what the women are entitled to. So the inconsistency of provision of basic requirements was something that I found quite striking. And I named this um, in my research as institutional thoughtlessness, which builds on the research of of another researcher um, and looks at the system being a patriarchal system, especially when considering the pregnant woman where she really is not catered for by our prison system. When we set up a prison, we don't think about pregnant women. It's not something that we consider when we instantly think about prison either. Um, Also the stigma that's involved and the shame that women experienced um, was something that was quite striking too. So women, unlike any other kind of prisoner, by the nature of being pregnant, would be in and out of the prison system over and over again on hospital visits, um, visits that they may make more frequently simply because of the nature of the type of women that you'd meet in prison that was pregnant. She was more likely to have risk factors, so she'd be more likely to need to visit hospital more frequently. And the shame of coming in and out of prison and revisiting that stigma over and over again was something that women um, would tell me about and the embarrassment and shame that they felt. But I also found that pregnancy could be a unique turning point for women. So women that I categorised as safe haven women, although they're in the minority in my study, could view their pregnancy as a time to get clean from drugs, to sort out their health issues and to really um, encourage them in becoming a mother and sometimes although women may have had multiple removals of their babies being given an opportunity or a chance to make a change and really um, made a difference to some women and I found that women that I'd interviewed post-release who'd been given an opportunity to keep their baby were now in full-time employment, their children were well brought up by them, looked after by their mothers, and they'd turned their life around. And the woman, if she had been on drugs or alcohol previously, had managed to get clean and stay clean. And they often credited one particular person or healthcare professional that really took a chance to see them as having potential to be able to be a good enough mother. So when I set out to do this research, um, I didn't realise the, the, the scope or the impact that it would have. But now I have um, undertaken this research and the findings are so important to share. And I believe that, you know, hopefully working with other organisations such as the charity Birth Companions who um, work with pregnant women and, and new mothers in prison, it means that I can share this research with um, the inspectorate, which I have done, 
with the Care Quality Commission, which I have done, but also um, at government level. So I've been able to meet with um, government shadow ministers and also present my research as evidence in the Human Rights Committee on the 6th of March. And it's really important that the message gets out there. And I think that we shouldn't underestimate our own ability to be able to really make an impact and a difference with the research that we do. And in fact, we have a responsibility to do that. When I was undertaking this research, women um, would talk to me about them feeling invisible and not having a voice. And I felt that it was very important that the, the women's voices were represented and shared. And also, I hope I've demonstrated the importance of qualitative research. Actually, having women's narratives, their stories, has a huge impact on our public's imagination and also the way that the government will perceive um, the messages. I think the women's voices really do have an impact. Laura, any final message you can give to HSK students who are undertaking research or to the first-year students who are starting their journey in health and social care professions? Laura, in your final message to our listeners, can you also tell us how did you get from an idea to presenting in Westminster? Please tell us, how did you move from step A to step Z? Thank you, Richard. I'd start with saying that um, one of my final messages would be to um, not forget how much of an impact that you can have. You know, when, when I was starting out in um, as a student nurse and then as a student midwife, um, I realised how much of an impact I could have on, on an individual just by being caring and compassionate. Um, but when you're undertaking research as a health professional or social work professional, I would suggest that first of all you find a topic that you are really passionate about and something that will sustain you whilst you're undertaking some research. Um, But along that journey, I think it's really important to remember that you, um, although you can individually make an impact, that you cannot do this on your own. So I would suggest that the people that you network with um, work with outside agencies who share the same passion as you. Um, For example, I uh, have spent um, much time over the past six or seven years building up a relationship with the charity Birth Companions who work with pregnant women in prison and new mothers and have uh, written with them and work alongside them. Also other academics and um, health professionals and social work professionals who work in the same area as me. So building my network and, you know, working also with those who have lived experiences. Um, I, as I said, um, sometimes women would say, you know, uh, we don't have a voice. However, never underestimate how important it is to work with those who actually have the lived experiences. I have been able to um, report my research and and um, speak out about the conditions that pregnant women have experienced. But um, you know, the, the the real power is in those who have experienced experienced themselves. Um, I would also say that um, you do need a little bit of courage as well, and I won't say it is easy. Um, going up there and speaking to people in um, 
who I, I feel um, who are in very senior positions, especially in government. It's not easy, but it's important to sometimes take some courage and be a bit brave in these situations if you want to make changes. So don't be afraid to speak out. Um, and I would suggest, you know, if, whether you're a first year student nurse or a student paramedic or social worker or midwife, um, you know, the person in your care your, um, is the most important person. You need to be their advocate. And I would say that advocacy is really, really important. And that's what I'm hoping to do here. Um, it's, it's quite hard to put in a nutshell how I move from A to Z. But I think just keeping passionate about what I, what I wanted to do and also realistic and passionate about what I would like to change too. Um, has sort of helped sustain me Um, but I I would say that sometimes you do things not because they are necessarily easy but sometimes you do things because they're a challenge and I quite like a challenge as well so um, I would say that's my my final message be prepared to be challenged. Laura, what a beautiful and encouraging message you have left with our listeners. I'm sure our listeners, especially HSK students that are undertaking research, are going to take on your key message. Laura, thank you so much for the wonderful and useful information you have shared with us today. We wish you good luck in your forthcoming presentation in Westminster and hope the government listens to your recommendation to highlight the issues facing pregnant women in English prisons. It's been my pleasure, Richard, and thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, Laura Andy. We wish you good luck. Thank you. I also need to thank the following ladies who worked with Laura, Emily Brighton, Georgia Panico, Ella Porter, Holly Morton. Thank you for your fantastic actress skills. You are amazing in helping Laura to portray her message. I wish to thank our guests, Julie, Laura, and Ellen, for the good messages and news they have shared with us today. It's always a pleasure to have our guests on the HSK Student Pod. Now, before we come to the end of this podcast, let me remind you of the support there is for you here in the school and in the wider university. We know that HSK students are unique. You always study hard, you work hard, and are always constantly helping or supporting those around you. Our job is to help you make the most of the brilliant education, social and life experience that is available to you here in the university. I really encourage you to make the most of the resources and support you are being offered. On that note, I really encourage you to go and make use of the wonderful resource called the ASS site. This is a brilliant site that will help you develop academic study skills and it includes resources tailored specifically for health and social work professions. For example, the section I want you to really invest this time is called Understanding Academic Terms. This section gives you good explanations, for example, of using academic terms such as critical analysis, critical reflections, evaluation. You end up in a position where you can't literally find it easy to write critical analysis for your assignments or maybe critical reflections or maybe good evaluations. Please, I really need you to go and visit the section called Understanding Academic Terms. In this section, there is also a general academic language phrase bank resource that provides you with lots of useful words and phrases that typically appear in academic writing. Dear HSK students, why wouldn't you make yourself a fantastic resource such as this? 
to help you improve your use of uh, academic terms or academic language when writing your assignments or projects. So please, come make use of this resource. Now, how do you get to the Understanding Academic Terms section? What you need to do, go to the ASA site. Once you're on the site, you will see the links at the top. From the links at the top, what you need to do, you need to click on Academic Writing. When you've clicked on Academic Writing link, then the drop-down gives you uh, uh, about three options. You need to choose the option called Understand Academic Terms. So what you need to do, go to the ASA site. Once you are there, there are links at the top. You need to choose the link that says Academic Writing. When you click on Academic Writing, there will be uh, uh, drop-down links that come up. You need to choose the one that says Understand Academic Terms. Once you're on that section, it will be straightforward. You'll be able to see what is next. If you have forgotten to access the ASA site, I'll quickly remind you how you get there. Your Moji website, by the way, should have a link to the ASA site. Alternatively, you can go straight to the ASA site by typing the following address. HTTP colon forward slash academic hyphen skills dot health dot hearts dot se dot uk alternatively you can access the assi by going to this address i'll repeat http colon forward slash academic hyphen skills dot health dot hearts dot se dot uk by the way don't forget to sign up to the hsk student podcast so that you can receive new episodes automatically this can be done by downloading and installing the soundcloud app which is a free app that will give you easy access to the uh, podcast episodes. Once you've actually played the podcast episodes, if you click on subscribe, you'll be able to get these episodes automatically. Those who have uh, iPhones can also get access to the podcast through the iTunes uh, website download list. So please, you really need to make sure it's not the App Store. It's the iTunes website that will give you access to the HSK student pod. So I encourage you to remind five friends of yours to listen to this episode. By doing this, you are doing your part to helping building the HSK staff student community. So please, I encourage you to remind five friends of yours to listen to this episode. And if you do this, you are doing your part to help build the HSK staff student community. I know there are many of you on placements. I wish you good luck on your placements. Good luck in your current and future assignments. Lastly, I just need to say, look after yourselves and I hope everything you do in March goes well for you. Bye-bye from Richard, your host, and join us in our next HSK Student Pod, which will have something fresh and new to listen to.